Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream Cruise Medical Centre, Nottingham. This episode is a live recording of the unblinding research session on p-values, confidence intervals and outcome measurements. As ever, any and all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Uh, cool. So today we're going to talk about p-values, confidence intervals and outcome measures. We've got some activities to hopefully explain some of these principles. Really what we're talking about is these numbers that you'll see. So if you ever read a paper, you'll see these random numbers. So you see this P followed by a number. So hopefully by the end of today, you'll understand what that is and why we put it there, okay? And then you'll also see sometimes a value is given followed by in brackets, a percentage, CI or confidence interval, and then a range of values, which is what I've highlighted there for you. So again, I'll, through another activity, I'll hopefully show you why they do that and what it means. Okay. Um, just so that when you ever encounter it again, you can go, okay, I understand what that means. Okay. So, and then we'll uh, have a bit of a chat about outcome measures as well. Okay, so we'll explain outcome measures, we'll explain what p-values are and why they are used, and then explain what confidence intervals are and why they are used as well. Okay, this is a nice friendly environment, okay, two stormtroopers looking into the sunset. This is nice and friendly, there is no such thing as a stupid question. If you want me to slow down, if you want me to go through something again, please just let me know and we will do that. Okay, so... First up, I want us to imagine that we are a drug company, okay? We want to make lots of money, which is what drug companies are there for. And we've invented a brand new beta blocker that we are gonna call SuperLol, okay? And this is going to be the best beta blocker that money can buy and hopefully make us a lot of money and make us rich, okay? We want to know that SuperLol works, don't we? Okay, well we're going to market it as being better than anybody else's. We need to know that it works. Okay. Now there's a problem when it... What have I done with that coin? What did I do with it? Where have I put it? There it is. Okay. <coughs> so we want to know if A, will it work? B, does it not work? So that's what we want to, to show, okay? Now the trouble is, whenever we give a drug, things can happen to muddy the waters and muddy our results. The placebo effect is one, so we all know about that. There's recently a study that was released where people with chronic back pain were recruited into this study. They were told that they would either be given a placebo or a brand new wonder drug. They were all given a placebo and they reported amazing results. So people who couldn't walk were walking. People who couldn't go to work were going to work. Okay, amazing. And even when they were told this is a placebo, people were like, can we carry on taking it? Was that on TV? Sorry? Was that on TV? I don't know if it's on TV. It was really, it was, I was listening to it on the, radio, on the radio the other month and it was inc incredible, so. Yeah, so it's incredible. It's like it opened up an idea to them that they could do it, and just that alone had got them over this major hurdle. So it's quite incredible. 
Okay. Other things as well can affect, so the way that we recruit patients, the way that we design our project can affect different things. Okay. And chance is a major thing as well. And to prove it, I'm going to test the psychic ability of this group. So I require a volunteer to come up here and toss a coin ten times for me. Who would like to toss a coin ten times? Okay. Okay. So this shows that with a simple binary choice of one of two things, two out of ten times purely by chance, you get the right result. Okay, chance is a major thing. Okay. So if I give drug to a patient, there is a chance that that drug will work even though it will show positive results even if it doesn't actually work. Okay. What it also shows is there's a number of different types of error. So you could have a positive that turns out to be a negative, so you can have false positives. You can also have negatives that turn out to be positive, so you can have false negatives as well. Okay. So your result can be masked by the fact that you have these false positives and these false negatives. I.e. a false positive, your research shows that your drug works when in actual fact it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Too many false positives, you would broadcast super lol is the greatest drug ever, give me lots of money, and you'd be, end up being sued because it doesn't actually work. Too many false negatives, you've spent millions of pounds on research and you find that it doesn't work when actually it does, and you kill, kill off that research and you kill off a potential cure for high blood pressure. Does that make sense? Okay. So really there's three things going on that through chance alone, so two out of ten times we've got it right. I'm not going to call any of the psychic in this room, but two out of ten times we've got it right. And also there are false positives and there are false negatives. Okay. The p-value that you see there in the research, p-value is all about false positives. Okay. The gold standard of research is to document a p-value of less than 0.05. If your research has a p-value of that, that means that there is a less than 5% chance that the effect in that research was due to chance and chance alone. If you have a p-value of less than 0.05, that is what we call significant result. So when you hear scientists talking about significance, that is what they mean. It means that yes, your drug works, your test works, there is a positive result there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, as we did in last week, month's session, like Celia will, will hopefully remember, we can set our p-value right at the beginning of our research, and that affects how many people we bring to our research, because we say, I want a p-value of this, when we're setting up the research, and then that decides how many um, participants we get to our research. We can also calculate a p-value based off a group of data as well when we're given it. So you can do it at the beginning of research, you can do it at the end of research. It's all complicated, I'm not going to put us through that, don't worry. But hopefully what that shows is if you see this, that means that that, data, that research is significant. You'll notice here, they've called a p-value of less than 0.01, so that's even more significant. Okay. So. And you'll find that for the really big research, they'll want that, a p-value that's even less than 0.05. What it basically means is there's, only a, there's a less than 5% chance that that was just due to random chance alone, i.e. that drug works.
Does that make sense? Good. So if you see research that's got a p-value above that, it is not significant. And this is one of those effects, this is the thing that can trouble when scientists are reporting data. Because in everyday language, significance sounds like this massive thing. Whereas actually, significance when it comes to research is a very, is a very tiny little thing that, that can make all the difference. Okay. We also talked about, we saw some false negatives there. Okay. And this is where we come into what's called power. So you might hear about research being powered for something. Okay. The gold standard for power is something called zero, is 0 0.8. So we accept that false negatives will happen. The gold standard in research is that we accept 20% of negatives to be false, which seems like quite a lot. What a power of 0 0.8 means is that four out of every five negative that that research finds is a true negative. One out of five, a fifth, 20% will be a false negative. They accept that. A power less than 0 0.8 means that that, that study is not powered enough. So a power of 0 0.9 means it's even more powered because there's even fewer false negatives. Do I need to go through that again? Power of 0 0.8 means you've got 20% of whatever you've found is written off as a so yeah so if again this is goes into when you're designing your research but you design a power and it has a decimal like this 0 0.8 means that 80% of any negatives that this study finds will be true negatives 20% of any negatives this study finds could be false negatives but we accept that because we know false negatives will always happen there is no such thing ever you are never ever going to have a perfect thing that will find only true positives and only true negatives we accept that okay and this is this is the uh, gold standard this is the uh, this this is the consensus of research so the power is the equivalent of the positive the, the true negatives. Basically, yeah. So positives, you're into your significance and your p-value. Your negatives, you're into power. Okay. And again, this is research. You do this right at the very beginning, and this is how this helps decide how you do your study and the number of people that you have to bring forward. And again, it can be very complex, and you need to get in high-level people in order to do it. Again, you could get a p-value, you could get a power that's more than this, so 0.9. And some studies, especially if there's a lot of money riding on it, will want a power of 0.9, i.e., we only accepted 10% false negatives. So if you're bringing forward the next cure for dementia, for example, there's a lot riding on it. They'll want that. They'd have a power of 0.9. Only 10% of our negatives are false negatives. Yes, Celia. How are these numbers chosen as gold standards? I knew you were going to ask. And I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Uh, but they are. And on his way out of here, Chris, having seen this, was, mo was not moaning. He was saying to me that actually p-values he thinks are worthless. Be and there is debate about it, like there's debate about everything. But this is the gold standard. This is the consensus. So this is what a p-value is all about and if you hear about a study being powered this is what you this is what it means does that make sense good and it's all about the type of research that you want to do so if we wanted to show that super lol is just 
if we wanted to show that superlol is better than say bisoprolol that's a different p that would be a different um, that will affect our sample size compared to if we just wanted to find that superlol is just not as is not worse than bisoprolol so whether you want to show something is better or just not as worse uh, not worse a non inferior one so this all goes into that so if you see that p-value, that's what that means. If you ever see that in research, that's what it means. It's what it's about. It's about significance. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. What's that? That's written as a... That's it's power to 0.8. Yeah, it's it'll just say that. It'll just say that. So you'll see a p-value. That's about the significance. And you'll see this. This is about the power. I don't think there's anything about power on this particular one. Mm -hmm. But they may talk about that in, in their design. This was powered for this. Okay, cool. Right then. So, blood pressure. We're interested in blood pressure, aren't we, obviously? We've created superlol. We want to reduce people's systolic blood pressure. How variable is systolic blood pressure? Do you have the same systolic blood pressure all the time? No. Okay, good. And we're hopefully going to demonstrate that now so uh two groups is that okay yeah we've got a stigmometer i've had to steal from the department i will return it we've got some stethoscopes would you be able to chest take i just want your systolic blood pressures i don't need your diastolic blood pressures but if you are able to take each other's systolic blood pressure shout them out to me and we're going to write them up and I'm going to, we're going to move on to confidence intervals now. Okay, so in checking our blood pressures, as you were giving them out to me, I was then calculating the mean for our group. Okay, so you're all happy with how the mean is calculated? Just a simple average, you add it up and you divide by the number of people. Okay, so when one person shouted out the result, it was 142, that was 142 over 142. So as you see, as then two people came, our mean was this, and then by the end, we've got this mean here. Okay, so what I'm hoping that this demonstrates is that as you take in more information, as you take in more means, your overall mean jumps around, okay? The more people, participants that you have coming in, that's going to jump around your mean um, blood pressure. And you're not gonna just give your drug to the people and ask them to take one blood pressure and go off that, are you? You're gonna be asking them to take superlol and check their blood pressure every day, okay? And as you know, that changes things. You can have uh, a bit of an agitated day that day. They might have just gone for a run. They might have had their yoga and be super chilled that day. You know, all these different things that, that can affect. So as a result, when we're writing up our data, we're never actually entirely sure what our mean is because it jumps around. So that amount of movement is something we call the standard error of the mean or SEM. Okay, don't worry about that. There is a way of calculating it, but don't worry about that. But it's just an idea of that it jumps around. So that when we were, if we were writing up our results about superlol, and saying this is the mean systolic blood pressure of a patient who takes superlol, we are never actually certain that's, the set, that's that accurate number because of how much it jumps around. So what we have to do is give a range. 
we know it's within this amount because of how much it jumps around. That is our confidence interval. Okay, so just go, let's go a bit more into that. So say that these are some blood pressures of our patients that we've got and we calculate their mean. Okay, so the mean of these patients, uh, the mean systolic blood pressure is 108 over 4 for these patients. Okay. <coughs> We want to then find out the confidence interval. Now, the, again, the gold standard for a confidence interval is 95%. You can have a lower one, you can have a higher one, but convention is usually a 95% confidence interval. And that means that you are 95% certain that the true value is in, within that range. So the mean systolic blood pressure on superlol we are 95% certain that it is within the, this range of data. Okay. And that is because, as we've demonstrated, the mean jumps around so much. And it jumps around even more if you're asking for multiple um, sets of data from one person. That's the same for heart rate, it would be the same for white cell count, it would be the same for D-dimer, it would be the same for, you know, where you're dealing with human beings, not machines, it's never going to be the same thing. Okay. There is a formula for it, that the mean the confidence interval is the mean plus minus a, uh, a value which is called the Z number times our standard error of the mean, which is how much it moves around. Okay. The Z value, don't worry about that. That is a number that comes off a table. You look at this table and go, I want this confidence interval. It gives you a Z value. Okay. The Z value for a 95% confidence interval is 1.96. Again, don't ask me where that comes from. So. We would work out the standard error of the mean for our patient uh, for this data. We would times that by 1.96. Our confidence interval is the mean plus and minus that value. So, if we say that 1.96 times the standard error of the mean for this data comes to 6.23, we know that our mean is uh, 108.4. Our confidence interval is 108.4, our mean, plus minus 6.23. So it's from that minus 6.283 to that plus 6.23. Uh, 6 gives us that range. So we are 95% certain that the true mean for these patients lies within this range. That is our 95% confidence interval. CI, confidence interval. Everyone with me? Say if not. Don't so much worry about the calculation, because we're not, not everybody's going to be doing that, but you will be reading papers and you'll see this, and you just, it's a point of knowing what that means. Okay. So if we said, so we would report this as going, our mean systolic blood pressure was 108.4, and then we'd have in brackets, 102 to 1.7 to 114.63, 95% confidence interval. That was how we would demonstrate that. That's how we would write it up in our paper about superlol. Sorry, how do you calculate the, the SEM? Uh, don't worry about that. It's the, uh, you need the standard deviation of your data so don't worry so much about that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't want to bombard with two, yeah, standard deviation, everyone's favorite bit of maths. Okay, so we've talked about 
false negatives, false positives. We talked about p-values and how that comes into it. We've, we've shown how mean jumps around and why we therefore have to use a confidence interval. So it then finally comes into thinking about health outcomes and outcome measurements. Okay, and there's a number of different considerations that come into us when we're thinking about an outcome measure. It's the impact of the disease and the impact of the treatment what the individual wants, and also what society wants as well. So if we think then about, if we think about those three things, what sort of things do you think we would want to measure then? If we, we're putting patients onto a treatment, say Superlol, we want to look at the health outcomes for Superlol. We're thinking about these things. What sort of things might we therefore look for as an outcome measurement? <coughs> yeah, we could just look at a sheer value. Yeah, absolutely. A sheer value, here's a number, we know it decreases by this. We do know it decreases blood pressure by 50% versus something else. Excellent, good, yeah. Brilliant. Sheer money, absolutely. So society, there's a budget in front of us. This is our health budget. What does it actually cost? Good, yeah. Yeah, impact on the person. So what are the side effects? It's, no, it's great. Oh yeah, it reduces my blood pressure, uh, but I can't get out of bed in the morning for about half an hour because my blood pressure is so low. I get postural hypotension. I've had to stop doing, you know, going running, because, which I love because of my uh, low blood pressure. Brilliant, yeah. Anything else? how many times you have to take it from the so like yeah. you take 10 times a day exactly yeah is the patient going to take it yeah no. absolutely 10 times yeah absolutely and you know how often do you have to take it how do you take it so you know um, allandronic acid that people take for um, osteoporosis mm -hmm. you have to stay standing up for 30 minutes because it's so caustic there's a risk of heartburn it's not nice to take you talk to people about it and go yeah I don't always take it because of that it's, it's not nice about warfarin and INR. If you're starting a patient on warfarin, you're committing them to weekly uh, INR checks. So there's an impact there on the person, isn't it? Yeah, good. What's another measurement? So why do we worry so much about blood pressure? What, what does high blood pressure do to you? Risk of stroke. Yeah, exactly. There's another one, isn't it? So actually you could then look at stroke risk. So you could use a stroke risk score and see how much you've reduced people on this, on this stroke risk score. So that's another outcome measurement, isn't it? Anything else? Impact on the organs? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there any, I'm thinking more like kidneys. Yeah, absolutely. So like Fruzomite, you know, I've started you on a drug, that's great, but our number of AKIs has shot up because we've started everybody on this new one. Yeah, brilliant, good. So you see how it all sort of comes together and these sort of things. And you know, you've, you've got to take the individual in front of you as well. They're going, do you know what? I, I've had, I don't want to take anything. I'll take the risk. I don't care. I'll eat more fruit. Don't want it, you know. And that also comes into it. Again, we're not dealing with machines, we're dealing with human beings. So, you know, that comes into it as well. Good. Um, one of the outcome measurements we talk a lot about is a quali. So I talked about this at the ACP study day. Have you heard this expression, a quali? Guys who are nodding, what's a quali? Like quality of life. Yeah, like, brilliant. It's a measure of years. Isn't it? Yeah. Something like years. Yeah. So, 
so it's quality adjusted life years okay so this is a concept that's used in health economics a lot okay um, basically one year spent in perfect health is one quality okay your quality is essentially measured from zero dead to one perfect health and you can be somewhere along that on a spectrum okay so one year spent in perfect health is a quality one year spent in half perfect health is half a quality quarter quality quarter perfect health just to see does that make sense good you may ask how do we measure health because that sounds very subjective doesn't it so one of the models that's used and is used a lot is the EQ5D model. I've heard of that. Celia, we use this in our study, don't we? Some of our studies. Yeah. So basically, yeah. So the EQ5D model, this looks at uh, a patient across five domains. So there is their uh, mobility, their self-care, so washing, dressing, etc. Usual activity, so going out, shopping, walking, etc. Um, freedom from pain and freedom from depression, anxiety. And it's a subjective thing, so you ask the patient, but it's also objective, so you can fill in yourself as a clinician what you think, and you can ask carers, relatives, etc. Tick full boxes in all of those for a year, you've got one quality, basically. Um, it's not perfect, is it? And I think whenever you start talking about health economics, it can become a bit uncomfortable, but this is one of the main health outcome measurements that, that we use, and this is what we use to decide a lot of what treatment gets funded and what treatment doesn't get funded. Basically the idea is here, you see one patient living for 40 years in full health all the way. They may have had an accident, which happens, suddenly they're dead. Or a second patient who spent 80 years in half perfect health all the way before dying. Both of these patients have 40 qualities. So it's not about your length of time of life, which is actually what we often think about. Well, my relative live to be this age that's a good age it's actually about the quality of that time okay again it's a philosophical thing it's a very objective thing and when i talked about this on the acp study day there was a lot of debate about well i don't agree with that i don't agree with that it's a very personal thing but again this is this is what happens when you have a healthcare budget in front of you and you've, you've got to fund certain things so basically how does it work out so say that we've got our super lol and I'm presenting some data in front of you guys and I want your money, I want you to fund Superlol. Stop funding by Soprolol, fund me, okay? So, say with my Superlol, I can give your patients 79 years of perfect life. Without it, they get 66 years of perfect life. There's a benefit of 13 qualities if you give Superlol. So I can say that for so many millions of pounds, you get 13 qualities. Say my competitor says, for the same amount of money, I can give you 20 qualities. My competitor gets the bid. Do you see what I mean? This is how it works. So this is, this is why some 
things get funded. Some don't. So, you know, with my treatment for X conditions, so say patients had a really nasty stroke, with my treatment I can keep them alive for 10 years. But actually when you look at it, that whole time they're highly dependent on care. Even though it's 10 years, you'll be looking at a very small quality. It doesn't get funded. So this is why. And this is why your things that are for prevention, your statins, aspirin, all of that stuff, they love it because you get the qualities from it. You bang for your buck. Does that all make sense? Mm -hmm. So more money spent in prevention than cure? Precisely. Mm -hmm. Far better to spend a little bit of money on your beta blocker, prevent the stroke, mm -hmm. get those qualities, versus thrombolysis when you've had a stroke and your qualities afterwards is very very difficult and there's a, the, you know care afterwards gone from being independent to not independent this is this is why things get approved and they don't get approved so that all makes sense it's a bit of an uncomfortable subject it is uncomfortable i'm glad i don't have it i'm glad i don't have it and you can imagine what it's like in america where i go well you need a ct head and you can't afford it I couldn't do that. I'm very, very proud of our NHS. I couldn't do that. And I remember when I was an F2 in healthcare of the elderly, we had a bit of like an M&M, we had a grand round, and it was a kind of a philosophical question. One of the consultants says, I've got, uh, currently got a patient who is not from the UK, who is relying on health insurance. They come in with this condition. These are the prices of all of the tests that you want to deliver. This is how much they can afford. What tests do you do? And nobody could agree. None of the consultants, none of us could agree. Under us, they'd have got everything. Yes, they need an endoscopy. Yes, they need that. Yes, we should transfuse them. Yes, yes, yes. Probably got a tumour. I'd scan them. Yes, yes, yes. When you actually see the money, what it's against, they're like, uh, and nobody could agree. I'm so glad we don't have that. I'm very glad we don't have, I'm not, it's not my job to be a, to do this. Cool. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, next month's session, we're talking about randomization. Hopefully there'll be more suites involved in that one. Um, I'll put the, uh, this on the Take Already website. There's more information about how we calculate standard errors and a bit more information as well on there. And, and they've put up um, a BMJ link. There's an article, really good BMJ article about health outcomes as well, which is quite interesting, which is a good read. I'll put a link up to that as well. Um, I always try and end it on a bit of a pun. Don't be mean. Help relieve the pressure. <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. Hopefully that demystified some of those things That's for you. Good, yeah. Thank you, guys. That was the Unblinding Research episode on p-values, confidence intervals, and outcome measurements. You can find the blog entry, including the Take Visually for this episode at takeorally.com. Remember to subscribe to Take Orally on both iTunes and SoundCloud. You can find Take Orally on both uh, Facebook and Twitter. And for more information about research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine, and major trauma, you can check out NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.